This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, welcome, brave explorers, to Investment Jungle Safari, the podcast that takes you on a wild adventure through the dense foliage of finance and investing. With you, our fearless tribe of listeners, we'll hack through the underbrush of confusion and guide you to become a master of the monetary wilderness. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, good to be here. Yes. Uh, I think I only need one guess uh, to guess what the theme was today. What's that? Uh, jungle Explorers. Yes, correct. It's a jungle theme. We're in, we're in a safari. If you have just joined us for the very first time and have confused us to the intro, we get, we're getting ChatGPT to give us some uh, ideas for thematic introductions on how it can uh, present Equity Mates. And welcome, if you have just joined us, to Equity Mates and the journey of Ren and I as we learn to invest. And what an episode we have today, Ren, an interview that I thoroughly enjoyed and took a lot of uh, inspiration from. And uh, yeah, w- one that um, helped us get a different perspective on uh, private equity. Yeah, uh, Brent Bayshaw, the founder and chief executive officer of Permanent Equity, joined us today. He has a fascinating fund um, and he tells the story better than we will be able to here. But essentially, we talk about long term investing here at Equity Mates. Uh, all the books we read, a lot of the experts we speak to are real advocates for thinking long term. You know, markets move quickly, but companies change slowly was um, Emma Fisher's line that's always stayed with us. Uh, but when most of the experts we speak to think about the talk about long term investing, they're thinking five, five to, seven to seven years. years that's yeah. sort of the time frame. Yeah. Uh, Brent. He, want, he wanted to have a 50-year fund. Yeah. He got talked into a 30-year fund. But still, for some people putting money into that fund, that could be half their lives. We really wanted to unpack how that changes, that, that different time horizon changes your thinking as an investor. What matters, what moats are truly sustainable, how that changes your return profile. And uh, we... We're lucky that we got to unpack it with Brent today. Absolutely. Now, a reminder that we are licensed, but we're not aware of your personal circumstances. So, any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice. But with that said, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Brent because we certainly did. And if you want to uh, continue thinking about long-term investing, 
uh, pick up our book, Don't Stress, Just Invest, all about long-term investing and what is enough uh, when it comes to setting yourself up for your financial future? What is enough today to set yourself up with enough for tomorrow? So pick that up. Don't stress, just invest wherever you buy books. But with that, let's get to the episode. Well, Brent, welcome to Equity Mates. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Now, before we get stuck into the serious part of the interview, we always like to start with a bit of a would you rather. So would you rather have a pause or a rewind button in your life? Pause for sure. Okay. Why is that? Oh, you didn't say I had answered the why. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, okay, that's fair. fair. Well, hold on. Can I, can I push pause? No, I said no. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, most of my bad decisions that I've made are the result of in the moment uh, making the easy choice, not the right choice. And so I would love to be able to push pause and say, hmm, let me think about that for a second and uh, get back to you and uh, Fair. You know, hurt me. <laughs> what about you, Ren? Uh, I, I like the idea of a pause, pause button as well. Why? <laughs> but now that i'm thinking about it though like you could just continuously rewind, rewind and yeah. essentially it could uh have the same could effect have the same effect yeah. so maybe yeah maybe rewind um yeah. I, I also love the i mean you could go mass rewind and you could go back to like 2008 yeah. and just bitcoin leverage up and yeah, buy bitcoin <laughs> so you know what i'm going to change my answer rewind <laughs> and if i had a rewind button i could just rewind and answer it the first time Yes, true. <laughs> anyway, Ren, let's get stuck into it. Yeah, well, uh, Brent, I think uh, your answer about a pause button is very on brand because, uh, you know, we, we speak about long-term investing here, but you are a true long-term considered investor. And that's why we're really excited um, to speak to you. You are the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity. And uh, we'll, we'll get into the structure of your in investing, but you truly think in decades. And um, we're excited to unpack what that means and, and, and how that, uh, I guess, leads to sort of different investments and different outcomes. But to start the conversation, we thought we really needed to sort of set the, the context and, and talk about um, traditional private equity and how that model works so then we can sort of compare how permanent equity operates differently so to start with today can you just explain to us how your standard private equity fund works well as a disclaimer i've never worked in private equity and actually uh, after i bought the first company a friend of mine said hey you did a private equity deal and i said what's that really <laughs> and i literally googled private equity so all of this is hearsay uh, since I've never worked at another private equity firm. But from what I hear and from what I can research, the traditional model is what we like to call the buy lever strip and flip model. So you're, you're levering up a deal using as little equity as you can, using as much debt as you can. You are typically a post-close going to strip a lot of cost structure out of the business, at least you know, the traditional leverage buyout model. And then you're going to try to sell it uh, really as quickly as you can for as high of a rate of return as you can generate. So um, by doing that, not only does it ring the cash register and, and do you get paid when the carry accumulates, but also it allows you to raise your next fund because you got to have kind of stakes in the ground that allow you to do that. So, you know, most private equity firms are going to hold an investment for optimally three years, maybe four at the most, um, depending on when you catch them in the investment cycle. So you got to think about it traditional 10-year fund life. Um, it's going to take, call it two, three years, maybe even four years to fully invest the fund. 
So, and then, and then you got to exit in that 10 year period, you may have some extensions built in, but you know, if you, if you kind of do the math on it, a three to four year holds about as long as you can hold it. And, and oftentimes if the right opportunity presents itself, the private equity firm will exit uh, prior to that as well. So, I mean, you know, I've got friends in traditional private equity and some of the best deals they've ever done. It was, Hey, 18 months later, we got this offer and there it goes. So that's that's my understanding. If you if your understanding differs, though, hop in. No, that is very much our understanding of, of it as well. So I guess the follow-on question then is, what what do you consider some of the major problems with that approach? Well, it's impossible to make good long-term decisions with short-term capital and a short time horizon. You know, I, I could never figure out when I first started, you know, getting into this why in the world you'd only want to hold a great business for three or four years. And in fact, if you talk to most private equity people, it's not really the the companies that got zeroed out that that they'll talk about as their worst investments or the, the biggest problem with the model. They'll talk about the winners that they couldn't hold. You know, every private equity person out there has, uh, um, it's almost like an anti-portfolio. And they're like, oh man, if I could have just held that one and that one and that one, there's usually like maybe one or two a decade that they'll want to have held forever. There's incredible businesses. And sure enough, they sold them and they went to the moon after they sold them, right? And they may even passed. I mean, once you sold a private equity, usually you're either being bought out by a strategic or you're being resold every two to four years kind of in perpetuity. So, you know, it's a, it's a stressful thing on the companies. We also like to think that it's really difficult to develop great relationships when you know you're only going to work together for a short period of time. So it's easy to treat people as objects and not as the sort of the end. Um, so treat people more as the means than the end. And, and we think that's just a really bad way to do life in general. So if you look at how most families made their money, um, uh, obviously outside of private equity, uh, very few of them were like, oh yeah, we levered up our company and then we tried to flip it to somebody else, right? No, I mean, typically how you, how you make real money as a family, how most of these businesses got built is by typically using no debt holding for a long period of time, serving customers and employees and the communities that they're in, the industry they're in faithfully over decades. And so when we look at it and say, if that's how you produce success over a long period of time, why in the world would you flip to a completely different model and you know interrupt that compounding, compounding not only of capital, but of relationships? Why in the world would you do that? And didn't make much sense to us. Well, that uh, leads to Permanent Equity, which uh, you founded in 2007. Now, can you tell us how you set up Permanent Equity to be different? Yeah. Um, well, how I set it up was haphazardly at best. Um, you know, it, it, there was not a straight line of success, and and I think that's one of the things I want to I want to impress on anybody who's listening to this is. You know, we, it was not like I got into a room in 2007 and said, "Okay, here's this big master plan for how we're going to tackle and sort of rewrite the the rules for private equity." It's been emergent, and I think all the really good things are emergent. There are very few of them are designed. They kind of come out of nowhere, and and they come out of nowhere in the sense of you know you follow a path, and then all of a sudden there's a fork in the road, and you're like, "Oh man, that's an interesting path over there. I wonder if I went down that path if if things wouldn't be better." And you know, I've always said, just do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And so early on, I um, founded a series of companies, was a, was an entrepreneur myself and met a guy and he said, hey, you should meet this friend of mine. He just got left at the altar for the second time trying to sell his business. You should talk to him. And I took that to mean, I should try to go buy it because why else would you tell me that? He had no idea. He thought he was just introducing two, two people that were in the same industry and just kind of matchmaking from that perspective. And so 
as a snot nosed 24 or 25 year old, whatever I was at the time, um, I looked about 14. Um, and, uh, I sat in front of this guy and said, Hey, I want to try to buy your business. And he literally laughed at me. Like literally <laughs> it was like, what, are, what are you talking about? And, and looking back, you know, I was kind of offended. I mean, my pride was wounded. I mean, I was like, look, I know, like, I know I look like I'm 14, but can you just like pretend for a second, you know? And he, so anyway, we talked about it and uh, ultimately make a very long story short, bought the business seven months later, uh, maybe eight months later and um, bought it with an SBA loan. And so I had these, this really interesting problem, which is I, you know, I just bought a business that was kind of roughly the same size as the business that I'd founded, very different than the business I had founded, but was sort of using similar skill sets in a very different tangent. And so it forced me immediately to be out of both of those businesses so that I could manage both of them. So I had no choice but to kind of start to build a super organization on top of, of those businesses. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, very slowly started building. Um, the, the investment went well. The other firm started, started producing cash as well. We actually ended up founding another business in the interim. Um, you know, life's not a straight line. It's kind of squiggly. I'm really trying to impress upon your listeners that this is not a, a well-designed plan. If you can't tell, um, and it's even, and it's way, it's, it's way hairier than I'm even telling you. So, so then it was a matter of, okay, well that worked well. I wonder how many other businesses out there need to sell. It turns out there's a lot. I mean, if you go back to 2009, 2010, which is kind of, you know, when all this stuff was happening, there really wasn't a lot of literature out there. There was a little bit of writing out there, but not much on the internet. There was no like entrepreneurship through acquisition community. Um, you know, FinTwit wasn't a thing. It was just kind of like, you know, as funny as that sounds, sounds like the good old days, but it wasn't that long ago, but it was, you know, there just wasn't a lot of information out there. So I just remember thinking to myself, well, gosh, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, need to sell their business and who else can buy them and started researching traditional private equity. And especially at that time, really traditional private equity based on the two and 20 model, um, especially based on the cost structure and the way it traditionally works. It, it's really difficult for them to buy platforms. Um, so standalone independent investments, not kind of bolting them onto something else, but standalones for really under kind of eight to $10 million of earnings. And I was like, man, there's a huge chunk of really great businesses that I bet are between a million and call it seven or $8 million of earnings. And so I just started doing research. Who's doing this? I went and talked to, well, really anybody who would talk to me. I got, got a lot of no's, by the way. And, you know, most people I talked to were like, look, the way to do this is you buy one business at a time, you kind of dress it up and then you sell it and then you do this again and again and again. And there's guys who are like country club deal guys who have done this their whole careers and made really good livings. They provided for their families. They provided like nice service. They did well. Uh, it, that I was already past. Like I couldn't do that, right? I couldn't just focus on one business. I already had multiple businesses that, you know, had started to create this super structure. So I started asking them, I'm like, well, has anybody ever, you know, done this at scale? And they're like, oh yeah, Berkshire. I'm like, well, that's not really helpful, right? <laughs> let's, let's, let's dial it back a little bit. And, uh, you know, there's like, oh, there's Danaher. And like, it's very interesting, that, like the Danis or the Danaher system. Um, there's the Pritzkers out of Chicago that had, had done, you know, sort of built, you know, bought a lot of businesses and, and built up to scale. So I started studying a lot of those and, um, and really just trying to research the, the best investors of all time. So I spent a kind of a period of time doing that. And it became clear that, I think there was a path to it. I remember, you know, sort of the aha moment of, of like, I think this is really something that I want to dedicate my life to doing. Uh, I love family owned businesses. Um, I love meeting people. I love the diversity that, uh, of people and 
companies. And I mean, there's so many different ways to make money. It's crazy. Every, literally every week we come across something where like, I never knew you could make money doing that. And some of these businesses are big. So that was kind of how permanent equity was emerged. Uh, it ended up executing on, call it three more acquisitions after that uh, with my own capital. Uh, my wife started getting very uncomfortable whenever I came to her and was like, hey, you know how we've been building up this cash and why don't we take like all of it and put it into the next investment? And she asked me the question. She's like, what happens if any of this go wrong? And I was like, oh, it wouldn't be good. That'd be pretty bad. And um, so anyway, my, my poor wife. Yeah. So and then in 2017, ended up raising a really unusual round of funding. It was a, it's a, it's a, a fund. It was our first fund outside fund that we raised but very unusual terms. I say unusual, unique terms is what we realize now. And then uh, raised 300 million in 2019 and we're still investing out of that fund now. So, you know, as I joked in my 2017 annual letter, we went pro and it comes with a lot of benefits and it comes with a lot of struggles. And that's been a whole another story and chapter of how do you build and, and all that. So happy to get into anything you guys want to talk about though. Well, that, that's probably a good segue to to raising that fund because part of the tr- the reason for the traditional private equity model is that the people that are funding private equity, the limited partners, they want certain returns in certain timeframes and they've got obligations to the people that they're investing on behalf of. And most of them don't want to lock up their money for 30 years or they just can't lock up their money for 30 years. So uh, tell us about raising the fund and I guess convincing some of these LPs that you were the right person to invest for what could be half their lives. It doesn't make much sense that we were able to raise it, to be completely <laughs> honest. And, and a lot of people that uh, seriously, uh, I'm not being, I'm not being falsely humble here. It like, it, 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 I look back on what happened and it, it, it was an act of God. Uh, I, I truly mean that. Um, yeah. So I, uh, met this guy named Patrick O'Shaughnessy and, um, at the time he, he wasn't well known. He was just some dude who worked at a, you know, at a firm and, uh, we connected on Twitter and had a few conversations. He was like, Hey, can I come visit you? Great. Fantastic. If you want a vacation to Missouri, I always welcome that. And uh, so he flew out and we spent, gosh, like 12, 13 hours talking together. And it was wonderful. Like we just clicked. And at the end of it, he was like, great, I want my family to invest. And I was like, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring you out here under false pretenses. Like we don't have a way for you to invest. Like we just use our own capital and recycle it. And that's the way things are. And he said, well, why don't you create a structure that you want and tell us what it would take for us to invest? I was like, well, that seems like a challenge. And so um, went to the whiteboard for a couple of days and came back with basically the structure we have now and presented it to him. And I was like, there's zero chance, zero chance that he would say yes to this. Not because it was punitive by any means. It was just, you know, we asked for a really long time horizon. We wanted a completely different fee structure. Uh, we wanted to use no debt typically in, in the transactions. I mean, this is just like the opposite of traditional private equity. And he and his dad talked about it and they were like, oh, great, we're in. And I was like, well, crap. Like what now? And he was like, well, we know a bunch of rich people. We'll help you raise. And I was like, great. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like the, you know, Forrest Gump. If, you know, you know, he said like we invested in that fruit company and you know, Lieutenant Dan told us we didn't have to worry about money no more. And that was good. That's one less thing to worry about. And I felt like that, you know, I mean, it was like, okay, well, great. You can help us raise and fantastic. And, um, so, you know, he and I actually hit the road together. And I mean, it's, it's hard to describe how much he and his father, Jim, you know, changed my life and a lot of other people's lives. Um, I never would have had the courage, the confidence, any of that to raise outside capital without them. And um, off to the races we went, we ended up raising 50 million wow. in this weird structure. 
And a lot of people told us we were morons. And <laughs> look, I am a moron in many ways. So like, I get it. Um, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I know very little about a lot of things. Um, I know a lot about this one specific thing, which is how to transition family-owned businesses and try to keep them on the rails and, and grow them. And so, you know, when people would, you know, these are professional investors that we were talking to in like Greenwich, Connecticut, and, you know, these are big family offices and they would ask me questions. I'd be like, I literally don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm really sorry, but like, I, I don't understand. And they'd have to like, I think it was kind of disarming in some ways. Cause I was like, Hey, I will tell you what I know and what I don't know. And I will always raise my hand and say, I just, I don't know. Right. And so uh, a lot of conversations and a lot of people said, we, there's no way that our structure would work. Like they had a lot of problems with it. And we said, that's fine. Like, no worries at all. Like we're not, we're not trying to, uh, to push anything on anyone and um, look enough people said yes. And, and we started investing out of that fund and, and it, it worked. Um, the, the structure worked, the investors were thrilled and we blew through the capital way faster. It sounds like reckless when I say blew through it. Like we were shocked at how quickly the world opened up once you have capital. I mean, I guess a, a fool and his money are invited everywhere. Right. But uh, yeah, so we started investing that we went through it pretty quickly and then we ended up raising this 300 million in 2019, which was just, uh, that was a wonderful process. We've actually never gone outbound to any investor. So it's always been inbound. It's always been relationships and referrals. And so that helps as well. And we wanted to develop long-term relationships with our investors in the same way we like to develop long-term relationships with anybody in our system. And, um, and that certainly helped, um, too. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, looking back on it, it, uh, it probably shouldn't have happened, but, um, you know, I think that we, we, we built something I'm really proud of. I think the incentives are way better than traditional private equity. Um, we certainly love it. Uh, our investors seem to love it. So pretty good. What a story. Wow. So you mentioned the, um, Brent, some of the terms that you put in front of um, Patrick and, uh, you know, we're, we're big fans of uh, Patrick and, and the team at Colossus as well. So shout out to them. But, you know, mentioning that you don't want to use leverage and longer time horizons. What are some of the other characteristics or philosophies that you sort of, um, you know, embody in, in the investing approach that is different to traditional PE to help us, uh, our audience sort of really understand? And then the second part of that question is how does that then change the return profile compared to a traditional PE? Yeah, there's a, there's a really big question. Um, I could probably spend the next 20 minutes talking about that. So I'm going to try to give you as, as, as shortened version and double click on anything I say. So we uh, asked for 50 years in the structure. We got, we got whittled down uh, to 30 years. So there's a 30-year lockup, uh, which means there's no primary liquidity uh, that can be demanded for 30 years. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people, when we say that to them, they're like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, how, how does that even, how does that even work? And it's like, well, you give us your money for 30 years. And then at the end of 30 years, we can give it back to you. That's how it works. Um, they still don't understand how that actually works. Um, <laughs> cause it's so foreign. So, um, th that was unusual. Um, you know, our ability to not use debt and, and we, I can talk about how the return profile, uh, is changed or, or maybe not changed, uh, surprisingly, uh, based on that. Yeah. And then our fee structure is completely different. So we take no fees of any kind, no reimbursements of any kind from the LPs to the GP uh, outside of we split uh, cash flow as it's generated out of the portfolio. And we can talk about if you want to, how that works. And so it, it's a truly aligned structure. Um, everyone from our investors you know, down through the portfolio company leaders and the leadership teams that we have are all incentivized on the same metric, which is to produce um, great cash on cash returns over long periods of time. 
And so if there's a great place to put cash, the worst possible thing we can do is distribute it out. If there's not great places to ca put cash, the worst possible thing we can do is leave in the companies. So we're always thinking about what is our hurdle rate? Uh, what is our opportunity cost? And should we send out cash or should we not? And so our investors are very flexible. Um, they love it when we send them checks and they love it when we don't send them checks uh, for, for good reasons, hopefully. It, feel, it feels like uh, your story is also a, a real story in, I guess, uh, curating the right group of LPs and right group of, of partners and who are really aligned philosophically because um, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, your peers who haven't had such a, a good experience with the LPs that they've got, um, but it sounds like you've, you've been blessed in that way. Brent, we, wanted to, we want to turn to investing philosophy because... You know, we, we speak to a lot of investors um, on this podcast and uh, everyone will talk about being a long-term investor, but, you know, people are sort of talking five, seven, ten years perhaps and, you know, you sort of reset expectations or reset the time frame when you talk about 30 years as an investing horizon. And we're interested in how that changes what you're looking for and, and how you think about uh, a potential acquisition. So what is your investing philosophy? What are you looking for in a potential investment? Yeah, well, I, maybe we could to, to go to first principles, like it, investing is merely just the assumption of risk, right? I mean, all investing, no matter what kind of investing you're doing is just the assumption of risk. And so the question is, what is the risk that you're taking on and in exchange for taking on that risk? What is the potential return that, that might be generated? So the way we think about it is each company is going to have a different risk and return profile. And, and, and our job is to really think through what are those risks and, and can we as an organization mitigate some of those risks that other people can't? And so there's some risks that we feel very comfortable mitigating. I mean, leadership risk is a huge one. You know, we feel comfortable that we can uh, recruit and retain really good talent, talent better than typically what a small business family uh, could, could acquire and retain. We feel comfortable with uh, risks associated with balance sheets. I mean, we have a big balance sheet. We can, we can back up that balance sheet pretty well. So there's those are types of risks that we, we want to take on. In terms of what we're looking for in the companies is to be in a durable industry. So we're not looking for fads. If we want to own these things for a long period of time, we need them to, to do something that we think is going to be around for a long time. So that's kind of the first test we put it through is, is this company just naturally or the industry they're in going to be around in, you know, call it 10 or 15 years. And, and by the way, we, we're not committing to, to holding these things for 30 years. And, and by the way, we have an option to renew towards the end of our fund life for longer time. So we can hold them longer than 30 years. And we're not forced to hold them that long either. I think this is an interesting split um, that we probably have with uh, with Berkshire. Uh, Berkshire commits to never sell. Uh, we would we would happily sell uh, under some very specific circumstances. Um, we can again talk about that, but um, but we want to have the ability to hold it and compound for a long period of time. What does that require? It requires getting into a situation where all the stake holders are in a win-win situation. So if you think about short-term, you can have a lot of win-lose. There's a lot of zero-sum game that you can play. That's a very finite game. I, I would say, you know, we want to get into infinite game territory. So the only way to have an infinite game is if all the stakeholders are winning for the long-term because people will figure it out. You're not going to win if they if they don't win. So if you think about all the stakeholders, you know, we've got the employees, we've got the leadership teams, we've got permanent equity, we've got our investors, um, we have suppliers, we have customers, we have communities, and, and probably regulators, depending on the situation. That's a lot of stakeholders. 
So what we should try to think about is, you know, if everyone's sitting around the table, you know, who's winning and who's losing over what period of time? And can we create a situation or is the situation already the table set for us to all win together? And oftentimes the answer is no. Um, you know, it's just very easy. You go into a lot of these situations and somebody's winning, somebody's losing, um, customers are fleeing or customers are only coming to you because you're, you know, the power dynamics are temporarily in your favor. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of pieces to be set up. And then, you know, look, the reality of buying a company is there's roughly 400 things you have to agree on between the buyer and the seller. So, you know, you can imagine trying to set the table for that many stakeholders combined with agreeing on 400 things it is a brutally difficult process. Um, we look at a lot, we engage with a lot and, and, and close very little. Um, luckily over time, we've gotten better at what we do. I think, um, it's the nature of wisdom as you can accumulate it. Uh, if you learn from your mistakes and every deal is an opportunity for us to screw something up. So we learn a lot, um, about what not to do and, and sort of continue to add questions to our due diligence checklist and um, try to refine our processes and, and line of thinking. Mm. So Brent, when we, you know, we often talk a lot about moats and you mentioned Berkshire and they're, they're a massive, you know, pr proponent for finding companies with long-term competitive advantages. But when you're thinking about, you know, that 30 year plus time horizon, there's so much uncertainty at not only company level, but also a macro level, really interested to understand what you think the true moats are that really stand the test of time, if, if at all, sort of the secret source. And, and how do you build conviction that a company really has it to, to withstand that period well so let's um again go back to first principles on this if if a company is producing above average rates of return consistently over time they have a moat so we're only buying companies that have some sort of moat by default the question is how can it endure and where does it lie and oftentimes in the smaller end of the spectrum the what we call founder moat is the most common so there's some force of nature high intelligence high drive high willingness to sacrifice other areas of their lives to create success, a successful outcome. Um, those are the worst businesses to buy, right? Because th <laughs> those people are basically irreplaceable. Um, you know, in fact, we've turned down deals before where we meet the founder and we're like, you're incredible. Like you haven't taken a vacation in 15 years. You're a machine. Um, this thing is well-oiled, you know, everything's tight. Um, there's nothing we can do to improve the business and there's no way we can replace you. So like our returns are going to deteriorate over time, like no matter what. Um, we come across other businesses where the founders like, look, I've been burned out for 15 years. And like I go to Tahiti five times a year and I don't know, I don't know what Bob does over there. You have to ask him, right? Those are businesses where we're like, great. If that business is successful, despite an owner that, uh, for whatever reason, and that's how and I'm not being judgmental at all. Um, people people can pick and choose. I mean, that's the nature of being an owner. They can pick and choose the lifestyle they want and where they want to invest their time and resources. Um, those those are you know ironically um, better investment opportunities for us. And so we're trying to look for um, you know those those sort of mismatches in what opportunities we think can be pursued, what skill sets are already on staff, and then how do we kind of put all the puzzle pieces together to ultimately pursue them? Well, Brent, we, uh, we want to get from the theoretical to the practical and, and talk about some of the companies that you have invested in. Uh, but before then, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Well, welcome back to Equity Mates. We're talking to Brent Bayshaw, the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity, a really fascinating company out of the US who are true long-term investors is what we keep saying, who are in looking at investing for decades, 30 years plus. And um, Brent, we, we've talked about uh, how you set up the fund and I guess some of the, the underlying principles or the investment philosophy. But we really want to turn to um, your portfolio and so far, at least from what we could find, so far you've invested in 14 companies, a very varied group of companies, everything from amusement ride manufacturing to elite matchmaking. Uh, Bryce jumped on and tried to sign up for that after seeing it. <laughs> Not true. So I guess... Uh, Smart move. <laughs> so I guess let's start with, uh, with such a, a varied portfolio. What do all these companies have in common? Yeah, the 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 thing that's in common is we believe that the um, thing they're doing is enduring in the need, and we love the leadership teams and the families that we were able to to work with. So, um, I mean, everyone's a little bit different. Yeah, we have uh, there's actually 15 uh, in the portfolio, but um, I think we only have 14 on the website. But uh, but yeah, every one of them has a unique story. I mean, it may look like the island of misfit toys, but uh, there's actually a, a thread that runs through through all. Just for those budding private equity guys sitting at home or who are very inspired by your story, sort of you know thinking through the challenges of what it takes to improve a business to the point of it being able to be sold for more than you bought or just generate incredible cash flow over a long period of time. What's the, like the hardest part from your experience of fixing a business or what's generally like the most difficult component to a business that is, is, is yeah, the, the part that is the most difficult to fix? Well, uh, if we do our job right, we're not buying anything that needs to be fixed necessarily. So we're, we're buying, we don't buy turnarounds. We're not buying things that, that, that are in distress. So we're, we're buying healthy companies. Now, the, the healthy companies can have a lot that are, maybe off or a lot of opportunities, low hanging fruit to improve them. I mean, we literally had one company that we couldn't figure out why we weren't getting sales. And it turned out that the uh, number that was posted to a lot of these places where sales were generated was going to a fax machine that was unplugged. Oh. And so we um, <laughs> literally walked what? over and plugged in the fax machine and orders started coming out. Oh no. Um, so, you know. Easy um, job. Th- there, are, there are low hanging, there is some low hanging fruit. We had, we had, yeah, we had another company where um, we couldn't figure out what was going on. The, uh, the internet would, would go out and like destroy you know a chunk of sales for the day and and it would take time to get the system rebooted and all the stuff and we couldn't figure it out and um the head of it said oh yeah i'm so sorry we dug in um 
I uh, I couldn't get the extension cord long enough, so I so I so I duct taped the spike bar to the uh, um, filing cabinet. And sometimes the duct tape comes loose and then the spike bar falls and knocks out the internet. Oh, oh my God. God. He said, could, could we get a longer extension cord? And he's like, yeah, I could probably get that. That's yeah, sure. No problem. So like th there, there are opportunities, um, but, but those companies are profitable, growing, successful, successful businesses. I would say to slightly alter the question, which is what's the hardest part anyway, um, it's always going to be the people, right? People are messy. You're messy. I'm messy. Our messiness when it interacts is pretty volatile. And when you get a whole group of messy people uh, together to serve another group of messy people and are being served by another group of messy people and, you know, customers and suppliers, um, you know, there's a lot of mess. And so I would say, you know, with, with the, the size that we've grown to, that's definitely been one of the things is how do you spend the time to develop meaningful relationships because truly you can't go faster than the speed of trust. You have to have trust and you have to know that you can rely on people to, to, to get jobs done. And um, they need to be able to rely on us. Developing relationships, um, dealing with really challenging situations pretty frequently, and just trying to be fair and honest and kind. And um, there's always lots of opportunities to get upset and trying to, um, trying to not do so and trying to be level-headed and bring down the temperature, I think is probably the hardest thing. On that point, you mentioned earlier that a lot of your acquisitions have been family-owned businesses that are looking to sell. And the succession planning when it comes to family-owned businesses is always a, a real challenge. And then, you know, when if the family is, is selling the business rather than passing it down, I'm sure that at times that can get messy. How, how do you sort of deal with coming in as an external party and um, becoming in the middle of like these family relationships and succession challenges? Uh, carefully. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah you, you're, you're correct. It is, it can be delicate at times. There's always dynamics at play. We just try to get to know people. And over time you get to know these, these situations that can, uh, that can be delicate. And we try to be good, good partners and try to bring, again, bring down the temperature, try to create relationships, try to uh, help uh, foster relationships and, and maybe relieve some of the strain and the stress. So, you know, quite often we are in a position to either exacerbate or help those situations. And we really just try to be a force for good in in the families. Like we, we truly want these families to be successful. We, we care about them. And as you all know, you have families, families can be hard. And then you add in a lot of money and a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and strain and things can get volatile at times. So, you know, I've had moments in my career where I've had um, a seller uh, get very, very, very angry and call me bad words at late at night. And I've had to say, hey, it sounds like maybe you've been drinking. Perhaps we could uh, pick up this call the next morning and let kind of the dust settle and see where we go from there. And, you know, the next morning is usually, hey, I'm kind of sorry for calling you at 11 o'clock last night and F-bombing you. Yeah, that's okay. There's a lot of stress going on. So let's move past it and let's talk about the thing, the thing itself. So, you know, again, I, this was not me early in my career. I had to learn the hard way. And I think that, you know, what I would say is I see a lot of highly educated, uh, very driven people that want to get into buying uh, and owning small to medium sized businesses. And like I did, I see what's lacking a lot is a humility and uh, an ability to um, diffuse situations, the emotional intelligence that I think it really requires. And so, 
I tell our team all the time, um, we've got a great group of people who have all been operators. That makes us pretty different than traditional private equity. We actually won't hire somebody usually unless they've been an operator. Um, just because there's no way to understand the stress and the strain and the pressure, then then wait till you get into it. And, you know, I, I kind of laugh at it's, it's every week that, a, you know, some Harvard or Yale or Stanford person contacts me and says, I want to, you know, buy a plumbing business in Bemidji or whatever. And they're amazing. They're incredible people. But them trying to connect and relate and and develop relationships is going to be really tough. And so some hear that and some don't, and some are successful despite it. I mean, look, I life's weird like that. But yeah, I would say um, humility is humility is a key that unlocks a lot of doors. So um, we want to chat about the pace of investing because it's it's quite notable given that you've made fourteen investments across a time frame of sixteen years since founding in two thousand and seven. Can you talk to us about the pace that you work at? Like that feels like a very pleasurable pace to uh, to work at. And But um, we're also interested in how you maintain a level of discipline when many of, I think, you know, your PE sort of peers are moving at what seems to be an incredible pace. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, maybe we're just lazy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, uh, days seem very full and decades have seemed, have seemed pretty full too. Um, no, I mean, this is a question that, that we've gotten actually from potential investors and, you know, the, the best way I can describe it is, you know, buying one company is really, really difficult. Like it's almost near, well, it's easy to buy a company. Anybody can buy anything. It's really difficult to successfully buy a company and to transition it and have it cash flow and have some sort of either hold or exit in which you can generate, you know, sustained returns over time. Doing that with two or three companies is 10x harder uh, than it is to buy one company. And then, you know, I, I would say, um, you know, it takes one pretty driven person to, to buy one. It takes a handful of people to really give it everything they got to buy two, three, four. Building a system that can consistently acquire diligence, document, and operate post-close new companies every year is it's the hardest problem I've ever seen. Um, and I know from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, this guy's got the tiniest violin in the world and and he's just making it sound harder than it is. Like, that's fine. Just wait till you try to do it. And so to be honest, like we were going as fast as we could. Uh, we were going at a pace that seemed like often breakneck pace. We just couldn't handle anymore because we were building our systems and we were building our team and 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 we were trying to create something that was long-term sustainable. I mean, I would say is if we're successful in 20 years, it was because we made choices, you know, five, seven years ago that were good about how to how to build this. I mean, if I would have been given... $50 million at the start of my career and said, go buy a bunch of businesses. Like I would have lost all the money, all of it. I just don't understand how, I mean, there are people who do that and they're incredibly successful. They're just way more intelligent than, than I am and, and, and probably more driven. I just think that we were going at the pace that seemed correct to us and, 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 and things compound, like our pace of, of acquisition is also compounded. I mean, we'll probably put out the door over a hundred million dollars this year. You know, that's, that's, a pretty good pace and and it's accelerating from here um and so you know you, you, <laughs> i think J jeff bezos was said you know if, if you see what we're doing today really good decisions were made five years ago and i feel like that's kind of where we are is we 
on the way up, you're always lacking and on the way down, you're always lagging. And so it's always good to remember that if you look at careers, if you look at organizations, like any snapshot in time is going to be of you a false read on where the company's really going. Because if it's going down, like it's going to look a heck of a lot better than it's going to be in a short period of time. If they're on the way up, they're going to look a heck of a lot less impressive than they will, uh, you know, in, in the future. And so thankfully, I think we're on the way up. But it's nice. I mean, I got to be honest, like we in 2020 was a great example of that we just raised this $300 million fund. We were pumped. We were excited. We were ready to get out there and tackle the world. Then this thing happened in 2020. People probably don't remember. Um, <laughs> we didn't. You know, we, we didn't, um, we didn't make an investment in 2020 and we felt great about it. And our investors loved it because they weren't paying any fees either. I mean, we got paid nothing for all the work we did in 2020 on the investment side, zero. And we were great with that. And so, you know, that's the nice thing about our model. You know, when investors have asked us, you know, what's your rate of deployment? We're like, uh, we don't have a rate of deployment. We can tell you what we've done historically. We can tell you what's coming down the pipe, but like we may invest all our capital in the first year. And they're like, what? You may invest all your capital in the first year. Yeah, if the right deals come along, like we may blow it all. We may not invest any of it over a five-year period. If the right deals don't come along, like we're not a vintage of fund model. We, you know, we just try to do good deals every single time and don't do bad deals. We've learned that, you know, if you don't do bad deals and you do good deals, like it turns out okay. And so we're we're relaxed about it. I would say 2020, 2021, early 2022 felt hard. Uh, interest rates were really low. There was a ton of money from the government sloshing around in the system here in the United States. Um, everyone, we were getting outbid for a period of time by like 50% on everything. Oh, wow. Um, and, and these were not like highly competitive bid situations. These are like, there's three bidders, you know, we're invited in, we're one of three and the, and the sellers are like, we love you. Will you please work with us? And we're like, absolutely. Here's our offer. And they're like, ah, that's half of what the other guy is. We're like, you should take that other guy's offer. Um, so, you know, look, all we can do, we never changed our underwriting, um, to be more accommodating. We just said, Hey, this is the only thing we know how to do is do good deals. And we haven't moved our comment. We haven't uh, moved our, um, our bar back down since then. We've just always kept it the same. So, um, that's a long winded way of saying, I don't know if we have patience or not. We just try to, you know, again, do good deals and not do bad deals. Have you, have you really seen the competitors valuations come back in, in the last sort of six, 12 months. Yeah, it's amazing. As a friend of mine uh, who works in traditional private equity told me somewhat desperately, I, I talked to him probably five months ago and he was, he was really in the dumps. He was like, this is hard for me. Um, he said, basically no private equity deal that's been done in the last three or four years pencils out right now. Like none of them pencil out. And so there's a whole lot of people sitting on marks that are unrealistic right now. And there's a lot of people that are still kind of doing deals under the old model. And they're hoping that interest rates come back down and, you know, causing the asset values to inflate it back up. Because if you, if you buy a business right now and you're, you know, where debt is and how everything works. I mean, you got a lot of work to do to, to pay traditional prices. And so, yeah, but we're doing fine. We're not using debt in our transactions typically. So like, it doesn't matter to us. And so we've just stayed the same and everyone else got a lot more excited about paying up for businesses 2020 to 2022. And now they're a heck of a lot less excited. And so we've gotten more competitive by not doing really anything differently. Yeah. Well, Brent, we, we have run out of time, unfortunately, because there's so much more that we'd love to ask you about. But we do always like to end with a the same or a similar final question. 
every year we uh, hold an expert of the year or guest of the year award. And it's really just our chance to celebrate all the experts that have come on the podcast and given us their time and shared their knowledge. So as uh, a guest of Equity Mates, you're automatically in the running. Um, for the uh, Equity Mates community who uh, get to nominate and vote at the end of the year, you know, we're not big private equity investors, most of us. Most of us are small dollar everyday investors looking to build wealth over the long term. Most of us have the opportunity to invest in public markets, not private businesses. So, you know, to close out uh, as your as your final pitch for the Expert of the Year Award, uh, what can we as everyday investors learn from your approach and what advice do you have for us that we can take and uh, adopt in our investing lives? Yeah, I'd say you're, you're just screwed and I would index if I were you. <laughs> Is that going to win me an award? Nice. No, 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 no. Brutal. No, no. I, I, I'm just, I'm just talking. Actually, my my friend Ian Castle and I, um, he's a he's a great friend, and and obviously Ian does a lot of uh, small cap investing in in the United States. Um, he he and I have had a lot of conversations about how public and private investors in the in the the lower end of the market are are very similar to one another. And um, he and I have great conversations. He's a way better analyst than I am in terms of analyzing opportunity. You know, he obviously only has really kind of two ways to to interact with the market, which is to poke the buy button and poke the sell button. You know, I, I have a tremendous amount of levers. Now, believe me, he, he's suited to that. I would never be suited to that. Um, if I could buy and sell, I probably would have bought and sold each one of our companies a thousand times since we bought since we originally bought them, right? Um, I, I don't have the fortitude. Uh, it's, it's quite a roller coaster if you really know what's going on. I mean, I, I joke that you know all businesses are loosely functioning disasters and some happen to make money. And if you really understand the inside of these businesses, um, it is really true. Um, if, if you don't think that they're messy, then you just really don't have a good view. And so I guess my encouragement to... Um, if, if you want to be a professional investor, if you, if you don't want to index... Uh, which, by the way, I think indexing is a, is a really great thing for a lot of people to do. Um, you know, uh, we the money that we've set aside for for my three daughters, like we have them in an index, like because I don't want to be in the public markets. Um, that's not my expertise. So, um, you know, if you if you do want to be active and and not index, I, I would encourage you to buy fewer companies and really know them inside and out. That's one of the things that I love about it, how Ian runs things. You know, it's a very concentrated portfolio. And, you know, I can't remember if it was Munger or Buffett. One of those guys was like, look, like, you know, buying a basket of, you know, highly diversified of a lot of these things is not going to generate outsized returns. And it, in fact, it's going to generate, you know, very little returns, maybe even poorer returns than an index. And you're going to spend all your time doing it. I mean, if you actually calculate the amount of hours you put into it, like maybe you're making minimum wage, but probably not much more, Right. So the only way that you have a shot at, at really, you know, getting paid for the time that you're putting in, and I know a lot of people do it for the love of the game as well, which is great. And by the way, I, I love the game, right? But I would say is just really getting to know the companies, call people up, like you'd be surprised at who will pick up the phone, like reach out, try to understand the competitors, try to understand how they're making decisions. How are they hiring? What's the culture? I mean, these are all the things, you know, we have this 26 page single space checklist that we go through on every one of our companies. You know, I'd encourage you to develop a checklist like that, that you're really trying to understand, understand these companies inside and out and get nitty gritty. Of course, read everything, listen to everything that the, the leadership's saying, uh, read all the press releases, read the marketing emails, like, you know, sign up for everything. That's when you're really going to know the companies, because at least in my world, you can see when things start to crack. Um, it's not hard to see. You just got to pay attention. And so 
if you get into investment, the nice thing about the public markets is you get into investment, and you don't like it unless it's obviously very thinly traded. You should be able to poke a poke a sell button and get the heck out of there, right? If you can see it coming. So I feel like that just paying attention, being up to date, taking it seriously, um, which it sounds like to me, your audience does. They're probably doing the mm. right things. Well, great way to end there, Brent. 26-page single lunch, single space <laughs> checklist. would love to see that, but we'll leave that for another time. We do certainly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your time with the Equity Mates community. If you'd like to follow more of what Brent does or um, – Probably one of the best places is actually his uh, X feed, formerly Twitter, <laughs> um, Brent Beachdoor. <laughs> he uh, has a lot of great stuff on there and uh, you can join the conversation with him if you're interested. But Brent, um, thank you so much. We do really appreciate it. Found that interview truly fascinating. So, so thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, if I can ever be helpful to anybody, uh, have, have them reach out. Feel free. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.